Straw Hut Media. When you studied the Revolutionary War in school, you probably learned about Paul Revere's Midnight Ride, the shot heard round the world, Thomas Paine's Common Sense, the Declaration of Independence. You might have even learned about Baron von Steuben, the Prussian lieutenant general who whipped the American troops into shape during the darkest hours of the Revolutionary War. But chances are, your history teachers left out the part where that same Baron von Steuben was probably gay. Today on Pride, we move into part two of our series on the queer history of the United States. With the help of Dr. Eric Cervini, we'll learn about two Revolutionary War heroes who were honored despite their transgressions, and one lieutenant who was chased out of town. I'm Levi Chambers, and this is Pride. Last week, in part one of our series, we learned about gender in the indigenous nations of North America. We learned about the Spanish conquistadors and the ways they justified some of the violence against native people on gender deviation. We also learned about how the British colonies viewed and punished same-sex behavior. Today, we forge ahead into the later 1700s, about 1775 until 1783, when the 13 colonies decided to fight for independence from British rule. We're going to be talking about the Revolutionary War. There's Dr. Eric Cervini again, our guide through this six-part series on the queer history of the United States. So then, let's get started with this. Where does the gayness start with the Revolutionary War? Well, I think you can't talk about the Revolutionary War unless you talk about uh, Baron von Steuben. Have you ever heard of him? No. Okay, so he might be one of my favorite characters in all of gay American history. The year is 1777. The colonies have been fighting for independence for almost 13 years. British soldiers have won a series of battles and have taken Philadelphia. Winter is coming, and the outlook is not good. George Washington leads his 12,000-man army and their 400 wives and children 20 miles northwest of Philadelphia to Valley Forge for the winter. Men have to forage for hay because there's a scarcity of bedding. Some soldiers have no shoes. Conditions are unsanitary and people are dying from influenza, typhus, typhoid fever, and dysentery. The troops are struggling and morale is low. And then Benjamin Franklin, our favorite, hears about this guy. Um, his full name was Friedrich Wilhelm August Heinrich Ferdinand Steuben. People call him Baron von Steuben to save breath. He was a military officer from Prussia, uh, so modern day Germany. Everybody knew Baron von Steuben was an excellent military man. He had joined the Prussian army at age 17 and served as second lieutenant in the Seven Year War. Later, he was promoted to first lieutenant, then captain, and then served as a personal assistant to Frederick the Great, the King of Prussia. Despite his years of military success, he ended up cast out and unemployed. Uh, and the reason for that was he had been accused multiple times of homosexual behavior. Uh, so he was literally floating around trying to get someone, some military to hire him to run the troops, you know, run the run the military game. 
Enter French General Count Claude Louis, who sees the value of this well-trained and unemployed Prussian officer. The Count introduces von Steuben to the one and only Benjamin Franklin, who then introduces him to the one and only George Washington. Washington is the, the general of the Continental Army. All the colonies uh, are uh, reporting to him. And so he hires von Steuben, uh, this allegedly homosexual man, or at least sexually deviant man, uh, and assigns the very young Alexander Hamilton to be von Steuben's assistant. Baron von Steuben arrives at Valley Forge in February of 1778, after the troops have been there for about three months. It's freezing. Everyone's in, in terrible mood. Um, it's not looking so great. Uh, and he starts training the troops. Uh, and later he said, you know, there is no discipline at all among uh, the, the Continental Army. Um, so he starts implementing his Prussian drill techniques. And not only does von Steuben whip the soldiers into shape, he whips the whole encampment into shape. He organizes the tents and huts so that command, officers, and enlisted men are grouped together. He puts the kitchen on one side of the camp and the latrine on the other. He establishes rules to keep everything more sanitary, and his practices are used in the U.S. military for another 150 years. And so I, I have to say, even though the, the conditions in Valley Forge, you know, where they were camping out, wasn't so great, he, he, uh, he made sure that they still had some fun. And there's some evidence that uh, maybe there was even some homosexual or at least homoerotic activity going on. Like a circle jerk? <laughs> I don't want to go that far, but um, I think my favorite instance that we have is he actually threw some parties while he was there. Um, at this, you know, military encampment. Uh, and one of them, he had a rule. And the rule was uh, men were only allowed to attend his party if they came without, quote, a whole pair of pants. Um, and so arguably that could have meant ripped pants or, you know, pants in, in, in bad uh, condition. Technically, there are breaches. We know that uh, chances are they may, they may have come in various states of undress. You either wear a really old pair of them that were kind of torn up and not, you know, in good shape at all, which, of course, they may have had as, as soldiers, uh, or you wear nothing at all. And, I, and there's evidence that they interpreted it as meaning you don't wear any pants. So they show up to this event, they got no pants on, balls are swinging, or they've got breeches on with strategically placed holes, probably around the butt. <laughs> it is a circuit party. As a historian, I can't, I can't comment on that possibility, but you know, we, we don't have evidence that it wasn't that. I'll, I'll put it that way. So while von Steuben was a man on the streets, he most definitely was a freak in the sheets. But more important than that, we know that the Revolutionary War was won by the United States of America, by the Continental Army, largely because of, of his training, right? It became a professional army uh, because of Baron von Steuben. Uh, and all of the colonies knew that, right? Once America won the war, they recognized von Steuben, despite you know, the rumors or the whispers that were going on at the time uh, that America won, the colonies won 
the war because of this Prussian immigrant. Uh, so, you know, towards the end of the war, you know, uh, by 1783, he, he had become George Washington's chief of staff. Um, and then even after that, Congress made sure that he was taken care of for the rest of his life. Um, and even now, many cities in America celebrate him. It's a huge German holiday. If you've seen the movie uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, the parade they go to, that is Va- uh, Von Steuben Day. Uh, and Philadelphia also hosts events. Uh, Chicago has a Von Steuben Day uh, parade. There's a Steubenville uh, in Ohio. So we are consciously or not celebrating a gay hero, right? And I think if people knew that, you know, this this somewhat obscure holiday, we might not know who Von Steuben was, or maybe we know that he really helped us out during the war. Um, he was a gay hero. And I think um, people uh, should recognize him as such. So it's really an interesting story because you have this dude who's throwing like circuit parties, sort of, <laughs> right? Well, you know, I... I 300-year-old circuit parties <laughs> with assless breeches. They would... <laughs> I, we don't have any evidence about what actually happened during these parties. All we know is that he invited men over um, without wearing a full pair of pants, right? That's, that's it. Um, and we do know that there was pretty clear evidence that... Um, People that Franklin certainly knew about the the homosexual activity allegations, Washington most likely knew because what's your first question when you hear about this uh, army officer drifting around Europe? Well, why isn't he working for the Prussians, right? So I think there must have been some at least don't ask, don't tell type of situation going on uh, where because it was contained within Europe, some of these allegations, and you know he was pretty private about it. Um, and we only know about some of these relationships or uh, uh, through letters uh, that that he wrote, which were of course private until uh, we, historians read them. So um, you know it's care. We have to be careful not to say, all right, he was a gay man, but certainly people high up knew about it. Um, and I think people probably in his inner circle knew about it. Uh, so, yeah, I think it, it's safe to say that, you know, maybe now we, we can think of him as a gay hero and we can claim him um, as, as, as that. Now, another piece of evidence that we have that he was... Uh, a homosexual, of course, they didn't have that category at the time. So we can only really speculate what he would have been if we brought him here to 2020. But another piece of evidence that we have is that after the war, um, he moved in with two men who uh, may have comprised, the three of them, uh, a thruple. Um, And later in his life, he actually adopted them, uh, which was really a common option for same-sex lovers uh, who wanted a legal union uh, way before gay marriage was legal. Um, And so if you look at the letters between them, there is uh, some suggestions that, you know, that it was more than just a friendship or, or, you know, taking them under his wing. Um, He really, really did love them. Um, One of them maybe more than the other. So there's there's always some drama in that (laughs) in a three-way situation like that. But... Um, so that those are the pieces of evidence that we have that that he was what we now call gay. So it is safe to say then that there was at the very least, what did you call it, like homoerotic activity going on during the Revolutionary War. Are there examples of actual like gay sex during this time period? There are, and we have to uh, preface that by saying, you know, we don't have that much evidence of actual uh, sodomy, right? Sodomy was still against the law. However, 
Uh, most of the cases were not uh, uh, actual sodomy accusations, but rather attempted sodomy, right? Because you had to prove uh, that penetration, right? According to, to the British law. Um, so there was that tradition. When we come back, a lieutenant is convicted of attempted sodomy and Washington doles out punishment. Welcome back. Before the break, we talked about Baron von Steuben, who not only helped America win the Revolutionary War, but was also most likely what we now call gay, and despite the laws against homosexuality, is still celebrated as a hero. Now, we'll talk about a Revolutionary War lieutenant who didn't get the hero badge. When we look at records from the Revolutionary War, there are more than 3,000 disciplinary court-martials. Uh, so plenty of bad conduct going on. Of those court-martials, only two of them involved attempted sodomy. Um, so yes, it is safe to assume that there was plenty of gay sex going on during the Revolutionary War, right? This is an all-male environment in these camps. Time and time again, you look at the Kinsey study from, from um, more recent times, you look at any kind of analysis of same-sex environments, there is going to be uh, homosexual activity happening. One of those two cases involved a lieutenant named Frederick Enslin, and it began with a charge of slander. A fellow soldier was court-martialed for spreading a rumor that Enslin was attempting to commit sodomy with someone else. And that man was acquitted. And they said, okay, all right, this, this rumor might actually be valid. So on March 10th, 1778, Lieutenant Frederick Enslin was brought to trial for attempting to commit sodomy with a soldier named John Monhort. Now, we don't really know what actually happened. Chances are it was not some sort of consensual activity. Chances are John Monhort, you know, was was saying, all right, this lieutenant was, you know, doing something inappropriate or trying to make a move that I didn't condone. Uh, regardless, Enslin was ultimately found guilty. So this is where we get a little bit of complexity about the situation and about George Washington, uh, because we we know that George Washington, as you know, the general of the Continental Army, he approved the sentence. Uh, so after the court martial, uh, the the verdict was handed down. He was the one who said, "Okay, I'm going to order uh, uh, the punishment for him." And what was that? Well, this punishment. Uh, I think is really interesting, and it immediately raised uh, comparison to one of my favorite shows, Game of Thrones, where Cersei gets in trouble and has to walk through uh, uh, King's Landing uh, with, you know, the, the the priest or whoever it was. The mean nun. Yeah, the mean. Yeah, that's what it was. It was the the nun. Uh, Same. Exactly with the bell. Same. Right. <laughs> very very similar situation. Uh, so George Washington ordered and I quote here, with abhorrence and detestation of such infamous crimes uh, that he be, Enslin, this lieutenant, be dismissed with infamy. And the exact punishment was he ordered him to be drummed out of camp by all of the drummers and fifers in the entire army. Um, so he literally was marched out of camp in disgrace with drummers drumming, telling everyone that this is what will happen to you if you try to, to, to commit uh, a sodomy. So pretty dramatic uh, a punishment. It wasn't the death penalty though, right? Like this guy survived. 
But I think it's important to say, even though we only have those two cases, we can guess that there were plenty of sodomy offenses that were occurring privately and consensually. Um, And one of the reasons why historians say, well, we don't have that much evidence and there weren't that many that got caught was chances are the commanding officers didn't report it upwards. They wanted to avoid embarrassing their unit. Uh, So they handled it internally. You know, they might have gotten a a slap on the wrist or something like that. Uh, Because, of course, if you're a commanding officer, the last thing you want is for the entire Continental Army to know that uh, there's homosexuals in your unit, right? Especially if it was consensual and involved two men. Um, So that's at least one explanation for why, you know, we don't have that many instances. Um, But I think it also says, you know, even if Washington maybe was looking the other way with Baron von Steuben, Sometimes he didn't have a choice, right? This was this verdict was handed to him. He had to say, "All right, given the norms uh, of the 18th century, of you know our, our British heritage and how we view homosexuality or homosexual behavior, um, we we have to stay consistent." And uh, he couldn't really look the other way. So at this time, when you say like attempted sodomy, does that mean like? It didn't fit or like what was the situation there? <laughs> we really don't know. It, it could have been any number of, of situations. Um, we have uh, uh, next time we'll talk about early America and we have letters between, uh, for example, cowboys, right? Or uh, these male friendships that that blossom kind of among the elite uh, on, on the eastern coast um, where, you know, there were very intense uh, friendships and they often shared a bed and there are sometimes uh, allusions made to things being stuck in places where you know two platonic friends might 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 not be engaging in that kind of behavior so we don't really know exactly you mean like they'd make up a reason uh, like reason for I fell what? asleep and my wiener ended up in his ass. I don't know what happened. Weird. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I I think it's pretty clear that this Ensland case uh, was not necessarily a, a consensual, uh, uh, you know, instance. This this Ensland case was probably an instance of someone making a move or even sexually assaulting this other soldier. Um, regardless, the other <laughs> the other soldier was not was not interested. Whatever he was trying to do. Um, so what happened to Lieutenant Enslin? We have no idea. We don't know what happened to him. Uh, they just drummed him out of town and then we're like, yeah. and that's that. And that is that. That is all the information that we have. Are there instances in which like Washington or Hamilton spoke on their own about homosexuality? Never explicitly. They never said, oh, I know von Steuben is is a homosexual for two reasons. One, that word didn't exist, right? It, we're, we're not there yet for another hundred years. Uh, and second, uh, they didn't really think of it that way. It's something that anyone was capable of, in, of engaging in. Uh, but this idea of Enslin being a homosexual uh, would would never have occurred, or the idea of um, you know von Steuben being a sexual a homosexual. No, no, no. But uh, perhaps he was a sodomite, right? And so I think there is this question of you know maybe there's some sort of identity being placed upon him by society. It's another question of whether he identified himself as a sodomite. Uh, so we really don't know. 
But usually when they're talking about this homosexual behavior, it's in terms of sin. Uh, or if it's not in terms of sin, and if there may be some of this homoerotic language in the letters, especially we'll talk, we'll talk about Hamilton, uh, it's in terms of, you know, just kind of the same way we talk now about like locker room talk, right? Or a lot, you know, uh, two guys just, you know, having a good time, kind of the beginning of these these pornos, right? Where, uh, you know, two guys kind of joking about their sexual prowess. Like that was a really big topic of discussion back then. But then sometimes it would cross the line into, all right, are we talking about sexual prowess with women or with me? Uh, and so those are the questions that, that we ask as historians of saying, all right, we can't say they were homosexuals, but certainly there's this homoerotic element that may have suggested sexual activity. Got it. So they would have been like having their little locker room talk, right? Mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah, the ladies love my big dick. You want to touch it? Kind of thing. In so many words, yeah. Yeah. And we don't know if, if it, it certainly wasn't that explicit, but uh, they, it, it, it would sometimes cross the line, I think, to make it pretty clear that there was it was more than a friendship. Eric says that one reason we don't hear much about these homoerotic or romantic male relationships is that the culture of male friendships has changed a lot. People chatted differently with each other. Two male friends, it was okay to say, I love you. Uh, and now that's a little bit weirder, right? We have the no homo culture. Back then there was no such thing because there was no no homo. There was no homo at all. Um, so it was just assumed that it was no homo until maybe it was something more. Okay. So like I'm picturing, have you ever seen Hocus Pocus? Yes. I'm picturing everyone talking like the people in the beginning in like Thackeray Binks's village. Like, what hast thou done with my, that kind of thing. So I'm just trying to figure out like, how would it, there, you don't have words like homosexuality. They're not explicit. So it had to have been a very like poetic homoeroticism. Yeah, and if you look at these letters, you know, they're they're pretty they can be pretty graphic. Like uh you see references of like, oh, like you're going to try to poke me again while whilst we sleep. Uh and right, it it's it's pretty clear what's going on in some instances. Still, Eric says that even physical affection between male friends was in no way an indicator of sexual preference at the time. And you still see it in even other cultures. You know, if you go to India uh, now, you see plenty of men walking around the street holding hands. And so there's certainly this this idea of no homo or right or this masculinity where there can be no physical affection. That's a pretty recent phenomenon in, in our own culture. Um, and before then, you know, it was much more common to, uh, you know, share a bed or to be physically uh, affectionate. So back then, is it safe to say that Affection was much more open. Right. Absolutely. And especially among women. Um, that's something you see uh, with these romantic friendships between women. Usually with men, you would have a best friend where maybe lines were, were crossed. Maybe things were a little blurry. It was truly the number one person in your life. That was your number one companion. Then as soon as you got married, uh, th- your wife became the new number one. Among women, it was much more common for those relationships to kind of be maintained. And I think it was also more socially acceptable uh, back then. But we'll talk more about the, the romantic friendships next time. There's another big reason we don't hear much about the homoeroticism of the founding fathers and historic war heroes. All these men had descendants who knew their letters and writings would be of interest to the public. What did they do? They 
uh, burned some of the letters or they threw them out or they altered them, right? There's plenty of instances where you see, oh, this line definitely used to be here, right, in, in this letter. Uh, but you know, you may have a nephew. Uh, you saw it with Michelangelo, right? He had a great grandnephew who literally changed all the pronouns in Michelangelo's poetry to make his poems about uh, women, and they weren't. And not until you know hundreds of years later did historians find uh, basically the smoking gun that the, the grandnephew, Michelangelo the Younger, uh, had admitted to saying, oh, there's no way we can possibly publish these poems in their current form. There's way too much masculine uh, love here. Uh, so we found you know, the evidence that uh, actually this history has been changed and, and, and not for the good. When we come back, the story of a war hero named Robert Shirtliff, a.k.a. Deborah Sampson. Welcome back. Up to this point, we've talked about a gay war hero and about a disgraced lieutenant. Now, we'll talk about the woman who decided to disguise herself as a man and join the military. Born in 1760, near Plymouth, Massachusetts, Deborah Sampson grew up very poor and became an indentured servant at the age of 10. But she educated herself. She became uh, a teacher uh, during the summer and was weaving during the winter, uh, but still didn't have uh, that much money. At the time, the Continental Army incentivized soldiers by paying them for their service. So in 1782, as the Revolutionary War raged on, she decided to enlist. Of course, only men were allowed to join at the time. Uh, so uh, Deborah Sampson became Robert Shirtluff. She joined the 4th Massachusetts Regiment, and at West Point, New York, she was assigned to the Light Infantry. And she was given some pretty dangerous jobs. She was in charge of uh, scouting some neutral territory, trying to, to basically spy on the British. She even led a raid on a British home and captured 15 men. For almost two years, Deborah managed to avoid detection. It helped that she was tall and broad, but she also had to make sure she never went to a doctor. Um, so while she was carrying out some of these pretty dangerous uh, missions, she was injured several times. She got a gash in her forehead from a sword. She was shot in her left thigh. And to avoid seeing a doctor, she literally extracted that, that pistol ball by herself. Deborah was finally discovered just months before the war ended when she fell sick in Philadelphia and lost consciousness. She was taken to a hospital and a doctor said, whoa, wait a second, this is, this is not the typical male soldier. Still, she received an honorable discharge. Uh, why? Because everyone recognized this woman was, was a hero. After the war, Deborah lived the rest of her life as a woman. She married a man, had three children, and received a military pension from the state of Massachusetts. Then, in 1797, a newspaper publisher named Herman Mann ghostwrote her memoir titled The Female Review, or Memoirs of an American Young Lady. Five years after that, she embarked on a year-long lecture tour about her time in the military. 
And sometimes she would show up uh, to these lecture halls and giving speeches in full military regalia. So you can just imagine um, the, everyone clamoring to see this, this military hero. When Deborah died at the age of 66, her husband petitioned Congress for military spousal benefits. After all, his wife had been a soldier. And so Congress actually said, all right, all right, you have a point. Um, we will go ahead and, and give you um, the, the, the benefits that are usually reserved uh, for women. So the whole family kind of benefited from this upending of gender norms. We know Deborah Sampson went back to life as a woman after the war. We know she used feminine pronouns, and we know she married a man. But her bold rejection of the rigid gender norms of the 18th century is definitely badass. I'm not sure we can call her a queer person, but I think we can call uh, uh, her behavior during the war certainly as transgressive and certainly as, as subversive. Um, but to have someone actually uh, celebrated for transgressing those gender norms, I think is really, really makes this case uh, uh, really significant and interesting. Next week, we'll move into the early years of the United States. So after uh, America has won uh, the Revolutionary War, it's won its independence, and we'll be talking about, number one, one of my favorite historical characters of all time, Alexander Hamilton, and looking at how he may have been sexually deviant in his own way, and then also one of my favorite instances of uh, a same-sex female marriage that, that occurred in the very, very early years of the United States of America. a production of Straw Hut Media. If you like the show, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're tuning in from. Share us with your friends, subscribe, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Pride. You can follow me at Levi Chambers. And you can find Dr. Eric Cervini at E-R-I-C-C-E-R-V-I-N-I. That's at Eric Cervini. Pride is produced by me, Levi Chambers, Maggie Bowles, and Ryan Tillotson. Edited by Sebastian Alcala. The line back then was, it was tiny, where it was like, they're holding hands and kissing, it's fine, they're comrades. Oh, no, no, now they're a couple. Right. You know? Yes. <laughs>